doing so, please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 22. Text this morning will be Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 30. Uh, Pastor Brett mentioned that we are headed into the Advent and Christmas season, and so we will be taking a break from our study through the book of Exodus. Uh, This morning we will look at Luke chapter 22 for Christ the King Sunday, and then uh, the next four Sundays we will celebrate Advent together. Pastor Kevin and I will be preaching through the book of Ruth, and we will anticipate the coming of King Jesus in the book of Ruth. We will have Christmas Eve service on Saturday the 24th at 5 p.m., and we will have uh, Christmas, uh, we will have church on Christmas, which seems like a no-brainer, but apparently some people aren't doing that. Uh, Weird. We will have church on Christmas because it's Sunday, first of all, Um, but we will gather 1030 as we do every Sunday, Christmas morning. So we hope that you look forward to celebrating the Advent and Christmas season with us uh, starting next Sunday. But for today, for Christ the King Sunday, and as we prepare for Thanksgiving this Thursday, our text will be Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 30. The Holy Spirit says this, And when the hour came, he, that's Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. For behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table." For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, A kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess together that we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. Our song eternal 
is that Jesus is better. And we pray now that you would make our hearts believe. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the King of creation, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as we've already mentioned, today is Christ the King Sunday. It is also the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Um, Thanksgiving, of course, is an American holiday, but Christians all over the world are celebrating Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday is the last Sunday of the church calendar year. The liturgical calendar begins every year with Advent, which will start next Sunday, and ends every year with Christ the King Sunday. So Christ the King Sunday is sort of like uh, the New Year's Eve of the church calendar. That's on purpose because we're ending every year celebrating the fact that Christ is indeed King of all. Everything that we do is about Jesus. And because of the timing, you know, Advent always lines up with Christmas, uh, and there's four weeks of Advent, Christ the King Sunday is usually aligned with the American holiday Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving became a national holiday in the 1860s when, in an attempt to unify a divided union or nation, President Abraham Lincoln decreed that there be a national day of Thanksgiving every November. Of course, the idea of a harvest feast of Thanksgiving on American soil dates all the way back to 1621 when the Puritan pilgrims shared their first autumn feast with the Wampanoag tribe. And this, for the early American settlers, was one of the very few occasions where the European settlers had peaceful uh, relationship with the Native Americans. So you may remember from school uh, the story of the first Thanksgiving, but do you remember the religious context? of the story of the first Thanksgiving. The Mayflower pilgrims belonged to the theological tradition of the Protestant Reformation. They were English reformers. They were English Calvinists concerned with purifying the Church of England. That's why they were called Puritans. The Puritans believed that the Church of England had unbiblically married the church to the state. Even today, the king or queen of England is technically the head of the Church of England. The Puritans believed that Scripture taught local church autonomy and that Christ alone was king of the church. So first, these Mayflower Puritans went to Holland seeking religious freedom, but you, you may or may not know this about the Puritans. They were a little tight. You know, uh, not a lot of pictures of the Puritans having a good time. They're very stern people. And they felt that the Dutch were a little too loose for them. So they didn't stay in Holland very long. At that point, they set out for what they called the New World, what would later become the United States of America. And so fast forward a couple years to 
1621, when the Mayflower Puritans celebrated the harvest feast with the Native Americans, it was not merely a celebration of thanksgiving, though it was that, but it was not merely that. It was also a celebration of the kingship of Jesus, and it was a celebration of their freedom to worship as they saw fit in Scripture. Now, there's a lot of you know, American history, like any other nation, is checkered. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. Uh, but one thing is for certain, we would, here at Christ Community Church in 2022, we would stand in the same theological tradition as the Mayflower Pilgrims. They were Reformed Protestants. They were Calvinists. They believed the same things that we do about how God saves people. They were Calvinists who believed in the authority of Scripture and the autonomy of the local church. Our text this morning here in Luke 22 is a perfect crossroad of Christ the King Sunday and the American tradition of Thanksgiving that's been epitomized by the Puritans in 1621, uh, legally... um, codified by President Abraham Lincoln and celebrated even this week. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus teaches us about the weekly table of thanksgiving, the Eucharist. He also teaches us about his kingdom. And so this pericope is fitting for Christ the King Sunday and the American holiday Thanksgiving because it's, it's a place where thankfulness at the table and the kingdom come together. Every week at the Lord's Supper, we gather in thanksgiving around the table of the King. That's what we're doing. Every single week, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are gathering in thankfulness around the table of the King. And, And our passage this morning actually divides very nicely. Verses 14 through 23 tell us about the table of the King. And then verses 24 through 30 tell us about the king of the table. Verses 14 through 23, the table of the king. Verses 24 through 30, the king of the table. This narrative, though, is very familiar to us here at Christ Community Church, uh, in part because we take the sacrament every week. So we're rehearsing this narrative together every week. But uh, beyond that, we preached recently through... Uh, the Gospel of Mark, and spent some time on um, the, how the Passover was transformed into the Eucharist. We've been preaching through the book of Exodus and the Passover narrative, so this should be very familiar to us. The point of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus left us this religious practice as a tangible picture of his death and resurrection, where Christians commune with Christ by remembering and proclaiming the gospel. That's, that's what we're doing every week. So as we look at verses 14 through 23, we're noting in particular this morning that the table of the king is a table of thanksgiving. As Jesus transforms the Passover into the Eucharist, Jesus models thankfulness for us, and then he commands us to thankfully remember. So he models thankfulness, and then he commands us to be thankful. 
Let's note first that Jesus modeled thankfulness for us at the Last Supper. Look at verses 17 and 19. They say that as Jesus took the bread and the wine, Luke notes that Christ had given thanks. He had given thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Verse 19, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. All three synoptic gospels make note of this. The Greek word is eucharisteo. It's where we get the term Eucharist from. It's why we call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist, because when Jesus took the bread and when Jesus took the wine, he gave thanks and then passed them out to his disciples. As Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he's showing us then how we're supposed to feel and how we're supposed to act. Thankful. Remember, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write this text. This is inspired by God. So we know for sure then that this is the inerrant authoritative word of God. And God does not lie. So that means scripture does not lie, ever. That means that at the supper, Jesus did not fake thankfulness. Jesus did not merely give lip service of thankfulness to God. No, the word of God tells us that Jesus genuinely gave thanks. He was genuinely thankful. That may not seem super shocking to you, but then we remember that Jesus genuinely gave thanks to God on the night that he would be betrayed by all of his closest friends. Jesus gave thanks on the same night that he would be wrongfully convicted to die by a kangaroo court. Jesus genuinely gave thanks the night before he would be physically beaten beyond recognition. Jesus genuinely gave thanks the night before he would bear the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Jesus genuinely gave thanks the night before he died. What a healthy reminder for us as we come to the Eucharist this morning and as we go to the Thanksgiving table this Thursday that regardless of our circumstances, we should be thankful. What's the worst thing that can ever happen to you? The worst thing that can ever happen to anyone is that you would bear God's wrath for your sins. There is no more terrifying reality in all of existence, then that you would bear God's wrath for your own sins. Jesus bore the wrath of God for the sins of all of the elect. And the night before he did that, he was thankful. We if, if you believe in Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ alone, you will never, ever 
have to endure any of God's wrath for your sins. Never. And so there is no reason that we should ever be unthankful. Ever. We should be thankful first and foremost for the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus commands as much in this text. As Jesus is explaining the meaning of the bread and the wine, he commands us to do so in remembrance of him. He's giving us this so that we would remember and proclaim the good news of his death and resurrection. The bread and the wine remind us to be thankful because they tangibly represent the gospel. The bread represents the body of Christ broken for his people. The wine represents the new covenant in Jesus' blood shed for his people. Christ's body needed to be broken and Christ's blood needed to be shed because in Adam all humanity sinned against the one true holy God who created us in his image. And the Nicene Creed tells us that for us and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven and he lived the only righteous life in human history. Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. That's what the bread represents. Do you understand? The bread represents, in part, the physical body of Jesus that was physically broken as he was beaten as he was crucified, as he died. But the bread also pictures the body of Jesus' life, his body of work, his righteousness, his ministry. The unleavened bread pictures his sinlessness, broken for the elect. Jesus then died on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of his people, and this is pictured by the wine. The new covenant in Jesus' blood. Jesus drank every drop of the bitter cup of God's wrath for the sins of all who believe. Now, because Jesus died and Jesus rose again, if you will repent of your sin and you will place your faith in Jesus alone, you will be saved. I want to take one moment now and and break that sentence down. If you're here and you're like, I'm not sure exactly what you're saying. I'll say it again. Because Jesus died and rose again, if you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. So first, what does it mean to repent? To repent means to turn away from your sin. It means to acknowledge, as we did during the confession and pardon, that you are a sinner, that you have sinned against the one true holy God, and that you deserve his judgment his justice, his wrath for your sin. This is what it means to repent. It means to acknowledge that, to agree with the Bible about that and to turn from that. At the same time, what's going on is you're placing your faith in Jesus alone. These things are happening simultaneously. What does it mean to place your faith in Jesus alone? To have faith in Jesus means three things. First of all, it means that you know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You have knowledge of the person and work of Christ. 
Secondly, it means that you assent that those things are true. It's not just that you know what people say about Jesus. You actually believe that these things happen, that the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity in the incarnation became man, that he lived without sin, that he died in the place of sinners, that he rose again. You believe that's actually true. But even that's not enough, because thirdly, you must transfer your trust to Jesus alone. You must genuinely lay the full weight of your hope, the hope that God will judge you righteous in the last day, completely on Jesus. What does it mean to be saved? To be saved means that in Christ, God forgives your sins past, present, and future, and that you inherit the hope of eternal life. Eternal life starts now in your heart as your inner man is made new through regeneration when the Holy Spirit changes your heart, and eternal life is realized on the last day when Jesus Christ raises you from the dead, declares you righteous at the judgment because of his life, death, and resurrection, and then you live forever in sinless perfection in the new creation. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to repent and believe and be saved. And so now if you're here and you were honest with yourself and you were to say, I have not done that. I am not a Christian. I have not transferred my trust to Jesus alone. Please hear what I'm saying. This is the most important thing that you can ever do. This is more important than money. This is more important than education. This is more important than relationships, anything. Because if you reject Christ, you will spend eternity in hell because of your sin. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. Remember, we, we noted earlier, the Bible is the word of God, so the Bible does not lie. That's what the Bible says. If you want to have the best Thanksgiving of your life, trust in Jesus today. And if you have any questions about that, please, after church, come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Kevin, come talk to any of the elders, the pastors that led in the liturgy this morning, and we would love to tell you about Jesus. We would love to tell you about how you can experience the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. Now, if you are a Christian, which I'm assuming most of us are in the room, because all that's true, there is no reason for us not to be thankful. As we come to the Lord's Supper every week, because of the gospel alone, don't even, we haven't even got to the other stuff yet, merely because of the gospel we should be thankful. On Thursday, as you come to the Thanksgiving table, you should be most thankful for the good news of Jesus. That's the main thing. But even beyond that, like that, that's, that's enough, right? We're all, we should all agree on that much. But even beyond that, we should also be thankful for the Lord's provision in our lives. Um. So one of the guys said it earlier, I can't remember, everything that we have 
has been given to us from God. There's nothing that you have that God didn't give you. Whether you believe or not, that's true. This is true for unbelievers. This is true for anyone. Everything anyone has has been given to them by God. Matthew 5.45 says it rains on the just and the unjust. Acts 17.28 says in God we live and move and have our being. We should be thankful regardless of our circumstances. Because in Christ, God the Father has saved us. And because God the Father provides for his people, God the Father provides for all even in their wickedness. So we should be thankful regardless of our circumstances. At the mountaintop and in the valley, we must give thanks. For richer or for poorer, we must give thanks. In sickness and in health, we must give thanks. In life and death, we must give thanks. Church, this morning at the Eucharist and this Thursday at the Thanksgiving table, we must give thanks. The table of the king. Secondly, Luke tells us about the king of the table, verses 24 through 30. Jesus here is expounding more on the nature of his kingdom. We want to be careful not to create too sharp a distinction between the two halves of this pericope. Remember that the Lord's Supper is a sign of Christ's kingdom. In fact, in verses 16 and 18, Jesus mentions the kingdom. And then in verses 24 through 30, he, explain, he explains the nature of the kingdom that is typified in this holy meal. And so I think we see three things that Jesus teaches us here about his kingdom. Uh, these aren't the only three things that we could pull from this text, but these are three things that Jesus teaches us about his kingdom. The first thing is that Jesus' kingdom is marked by serving. Jesus' kingdom is marked by serving. After Jesus predicts the betrayal of Judas in classic disciple form, the disciples immediately start arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. You can always picture these scenes, right? Like, like you know, I don't know if Luke left some stuff out, but in the text, it's literally like, Jesus is like, someone's going to betray me. And then they're like, you know what? I think I'm going to have a better seat than you in the kingdom. <laughs> you know, classic disciples. Same, we, you know, and we're like, we'd be doing the same thing, surely, because of our sin. Jesus, who is the king of this kingdom, uh, then rebukes them because they have a worldly view of the kingdom. They are thinking in terms of the kingdom of this, as a, what Augustine called the city of man, not the city of God. The kingdom of this world, not the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus teaches us here that his kingdom isn't about who's the greatest. His kingdom is a kingdom of service. He says the Gentiles, now that's, that's just another way of saying the world, people who don't believe, Remember, the New Testament isn't thinking in terms of ethnicity. The New Testament redefines Israel and Gentiles to mean spiritual Israel or spiritual Gentiles. So Jesus is saying the Gentiles here, those who don't belong to Jesus, they revel in exercising lordship and authority. 
in the world, the kingdom is marked by selfish oppression. That's what marks the kingdom of the world. But Jesus says, this is not so in the kingdom of God. Jesus says that in the kingdom of God, the leader is the one who serves. The leader is the one who serves. And Christ, again, uses himself as the chief example. He says, who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Then Jesus answers his own question. He says, obviously the one who reclines at the table. But... I am among you as one who serves. We know that from John's gospel at the Last Supper, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. In the first century, there was no lower job than to wash feet. Jesus washed their feet. He then gives them what he calls a new command, to love as he loved. This is where we get the, the term Maundy Thursday from. Maundy Thursday on the church calendar is the night before Good Friday. It's the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, Maundy comes from the Latin mandatum, which means command, a new command I give you, a new commandment. The command to love others, of course, was not new. The Old Covenant commanded Israel to love their neighbors as themselves, But the newness of the command comes in that we are to love as Christ has loved. It is a self-sacrificial love. It is a love that serves. We call this doctrine Christus exemplar. It means that Christ is our example. It doesn't mean that Jesus Christ um, lived and ministered merely as an example to us. See, this is where you know, those who would identify as progressive Christians, they get this wrong. They take this too far, that Jesus was merely an example to us. Jesus was not merely an example, but it does mean that Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry is an example to us. It was, it's it's true that that Jesus, um, there's a sense in which Jesus is not duplicated, right? There's a sense in which Jesus is unique, that his, his life, his death, his resurrection, they are unique. It can't, it can't be replicated. He is the once for all uh, Lamb of God, slain for the people of God. So that's true, right? There's a, there's a sense in which Jesus is vicarious. There's no one else like him. He's the, he's the head of the body, the church, the firstborn of the new creation, But it's also true that we are called Christians. We are little Christs. We are followers of Christ. We are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as he loved God and loved his neighbor. We are members of a kingdom led by a king who served. Jesus gave up the glory of heaven to be born in humility, to live sinlessly, to serve selflessly, and to die vicariously. And if it is true that the king of all creation would do that, would serve, would humble himself, how much more ought that to be true of his subjects? We should live lives that are marked by humility and service. And so it's fair to ask yourself this morning, Is your life marked by serving others? 
do you serve the church? Do you serve others above yourselves? Men, do you lead your homes as servant leaders? You know, Pastor Kevin mentioned last week some of the work that uh, Ken Hotchkiss and Mike Thomas and others have done around the church and how it's appropriate for us to, to recognize and to give thanks for those who serve. And there are so many at Christ Community Church who serve so faithfully and so regularly. The elders, the deacons, the deaconesses, adult teachers, um, uh, teachers of children and uh, teenagers, those who, who lead us in music and the sound, those who help with the building and, and maintaining the grounds. I mean, we could go on and on and how thankful uh, that I am, that Pastor Kevin is, that the elders, that we are for all of you who serve, um, you know, those who make coffee, all right? Amen. We, we need that. Um, but in all the different avenues, Thankful for, for um, Pastor Kevin and his wife, Valerie. They've been here forever, almost 30 years serving us. They're really old, you know? No. Thankful. Thankful for them. That's the point I'm making. Very thankful. But even as we come into this, this season, right? Again, it's, it's Christ the King Sunday. We're, you know, we have this kind of American tradition of giving thanks. This, it's appropriate to do so. But that being said, so I want to say that. You know, obviously we, we could take the whole service and list off every person's name and how they serve. Thank you. Seriously, thank you. Now, that being said, maybe you're sitting there and your name wouldn't be called, right? If we're honest. Like, you don't serve the church. You're not serving others. Seize this opportunity, Man, Jesus is the king of the world, and he served others. Is your life marked by service? Jesus served others, and his kingdom is distinguished by service. So I think it's fair that if you don't serve at all, maybe you should ask yourself whether or not you're a member of Jesus' kingdom. Followers of Jesus pattern their life after Jesus compelled by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first one, is that Jesus' kingdom is marked by serving. The second thing I think Jesus shows us here is that his kingdom is already and it's not yet. Jesus' kingdom is, has been inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. Jesus hints at this in verses 29 through 30 when he says, just as the Father assigned the kingdom to him, now he's assigning the kingdom to the apostles that they may eat and drink at Jesus' table. I think we miss something if we think of this merely in the future sense, right? There is a, there's a very real sense that this is future tense, and we'll get to that in a minute. But if, if, if in our minds we read something like this and we think, we, we're only thinking about it like we will dine with Jesus when he comes with his kingdom, it's not, that's not all to the story, right? Jesus' kingdom is not purely future. It is also present tense. Jesus' kingdom is already. It is in the eating and the drinking of Jesus' table that we, that we find the already not yet tension of the kingdom. These same apostles who shared the Last Supper with Christ in Luke 24, so this is the, the gospel of Luke, right? Just, just some verses later, 
they will, after Jesus' resurrection, they will break bread with Jesus. Now, here's a little, here's a little hermeneutical note for you. Wherever you hear the language of breaking bread, not breaking bad, not Walter White, breaking bread, whenever you see breaking bread in the New Testament, you should think of the Lord's Supper. Now, maybe it's not exclusively talking about the Lord's Supper, but that language is intentional, right? It's, it's, it's leading you to the Lord's Supper. These same apostles would also continue the Lord's Supper every week with the church until they died. So in that sense, the kingdom was already. As we come to the Eucharist this morning, we are, we are enjoying a kingdom feast. It's a present tense. The kingdom is already, but, but it was also not yet. We don't want to lose that either. Because even in the breaking of the bread, the apostles and, and us, we're all looking forward to the eternal marriage supper of the Lamb coming on the last day. When Jesus died and rose again, Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. The kingdom of Christ has started and we are members of it. The kingdom of Jesus is a spiritual kingdom made visible through the church. And this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, is just as real as the world's kingdoms that we see with our own eyes. And so we need to hear this warning that we do not and should not minimize the kingdom of Christ because we do so if we treat national or global politics as if they're more real than Christ's kingdom. Right? We witnessed this a few weeks ago with the midterm elections. Now, I don't want you to, to misunderstand what I'm saying. Or as, as President Bush said, I don't want you to misunderestimate what I'm saying here. I'm not saying, no, you know, you shouldn't care about politics, you shouldn't be involved in politics, you shouldn't follow it, you shouldn't advocate for what you think is important. Of course. That being said, American politics are not more real than the kingdom of Jesus. And, and some people act that way. We can, we can get caught up in that. If, if Republican or Democratic or whatever politics are capturing our heart and mind more than the kingdom of Jesus, then we need to repent. Because America is small potatoes compared to the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus spans all of history and all of the nations, every tribe and tongue. If you're a Christian, your citizenship is first and foremost in Jesus' kingdom not in America. We are members of a kingdom made up of brothers and sisters from all over the world and from every generation. So we must not fall captive to political idolatry. Jesus' kingdom is real, and it is the only eternal kingdom that the world will ever know. We're reminded of this once again every week as we take Holy Communion, just as the bread and the wine are tangible and real, so is the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of Christ is already, it exists in the church. Christ Community Church, we are a part of the kingdom of heaven. It exists in the hearts of all who have been justified by faith alone. But, again, and we already mentioned this, we, we don't want to fall into a an heretical kind of full preterism. You know, some people would say like, uh, Jesus already kind of spiritually came back. He's not coming again, or the message of Jesus resurrected, not the actual person Jesus. That's heresy, right? If you believe that, you're not a Christian. 
if you believe Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if you believe Jesus is not physically, visibly coming again, you are not a Christian. Those are, the, those are some of the bounds there. We don't want to embrace that. So in that sense, we know the kingdom of Christ is also not yet. It has not been consummated. For millennia, Christians have confessed that Jesus Christ will come from the Father's right hand to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is physically coming back to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. So to confess the second coming of Christ is orthodox. It is Christian. To deny the second coming of Christ is to deny Christianity. So the kingdom of Jesus is marked by serving, number one. The kingdom of Jesus is already not yet. That's number two. Finally, the kingdom of Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is. It, it, the kingdom of Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. This wasn't, like, this wasn't like a completely new thing. This was the fulfillment of, as, as the, the Advent hymn goes, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The kingdom of Jesus is not separate from Israel's history. The kingdom of Jesus is the fulfillment of every single promise given in the Old Testament. There is not an Old Testament promise left to be fulfilled. Every Old Testament promise was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. We get a glimpse of this in verse 30. This is interesting. This is probably the most kind of obscure verse in the, in the whole text. In verse 30, when he says, and that you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what in the world does that mean? Let's first note what it does not mean. It does not mean that these 12 men, that the 12 historic apostles are literally going to rule over the ethnic Jews in the new world. As if Jesus meant to communicate that Peter and his comrades would be in charge of the old covenant ethnic Israel, kind of while all the New Testament Christians are under some different supervision or something strange. That's a bad hermeneutic. Okay, that is not what Jesus means to convey here. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom and message preached by the apostles stands in authority over the Old Covenant. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament, not vice versa. We ought not use the Old Testament to understand what the New Testament is saying as if the New Testament submits to the Old. The Old Testament submits to the New Testament. Everything, all the promises given in the Old Testament, the New Testament is there to announce this is the answer. This is the fulfillment. The person and work of Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, and the apostles' preaching of that message, of the gospel of Jesus, is greater than what was preached by Israel because the, the doctrine and the message of the apostles is the fulfillment of Israel's promises their story, and even their existence. Jesus says, so to give a different illustration, Jesus says something similar when he says that John the baptizer is greater than anyone who's ever lived, but that the lowest member of the kingdom is even greater than John, Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is the sign and the apostolic doctrine is the substance. The 12 apostles stand in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel. 
This is why we believe in a Christ-centered hermeneutic. This is why we practice Christ-centered preaching. This is why every pericope in the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is why, church, this is important. When you come to any passage of Scripture, whether you're doing a devotional or you're teaching a class or leading a Bible study, whatever you're doing, when you come to any passage of Scripture, the most pressing question you must ask is, why did Jesus have to die and resurrect for this text to be true? Because there's not a single verse in the Bible that is true or means anything apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of Christ is marked by service. It's already not yet, and it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So this Thursday, as we all gather for meals of Thanksgiving, just like the Mayflower Puritans did with the Wampanoag Native Americans in 1621, just as we come to the Eucharist even this morning, of all the things that we're thankful for, nothing should exceed our thankfulness for the good news of Jesus. Because it is through faith in Jesus alone that we find the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. We remember it every week at the Eucharist. Every week at the Lord's Supper, we gather in thanksgiving around the table of our King. And so even as we come to the table now with thanksgiving, church, happy thanksgiving and happy Christ the King Sunday. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that we would genuinely be thankful as we come to your holy meal. Jesus, your son, he gave thanks and he was preparing to bear your wrath for our sins, a hell that we can't even fathom. Father, Jesus did that for us, but before he did, he gave us this meal and and he was thankful for it. And so, Lord, we would ask for, for your people now that we would genuinely be thankful, that our prayer would be, Jesus, thank you. Father, we ask for anyone and everyone who's here with us who's not trusting in Jesus, that your Holy Spirit, even this morning, even right now, would raise their heart from the dead. That they would see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that they would know that it's true, and that they would trust in Jesus alone. Father, you are the only one who can save them. And so we seek to faithfully declare your message, but then we confess, Lord, you are the God who saves. You make dead hearts alive. You make the old new. And so, Father, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your word would not return, never once returned void. We ask that you would be gracious and that you would save this morning, that you would sanctify your people, and that you would give us hearts of thankfulness. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the King of the world, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.